Is it, you know, some sort of overt mustachio twirling, clan hood wearing bias, the point of rent review? Heck no. This is one of those scenarios of a death of a thousand cuts. But it, it's valuable to get into this because we can always do better. I'm Nicole Mlinarik for N Equals One, a podcast about science and discovery at UC San Diego. In each episode, we bring you the story of one project, one discovery, or one scientist. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Michael Taff, a professor at the UC San Diego School of Medicine. I'm Mike Taff. I'm a professor in psychiatry here at UCSD. My laboratory focuses on the behavioral effects of brain-active drugs, but mostly that boils down these days to what we call recreational drugs or addictive substances. Today, we talk about the grant funding process at the National Institutes of Health, or NIH. The NIH is part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and it's also the largest biomedical research agency in the world. Its mission is a noble one, to improve the health of the nation by conducting and supporting scientific research. It's a major source of funding for academic research in the U.S., and as Dr. Taff describes, most biomedical scientists rely on grants from the NIH to make their research possible. But no major system is without its flaws. And today, we address an important racial disparity in grant funding that Dr. Taff has been raising awareness on. Fortunately, he has a lot of ideas for how scientists and the NIH can address this complex issue. Here's my interview with Dr. Taff. In January of this year, 2021, you and Dr. Nicholas Gilpin put out a paper in eLife called Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, uh, Racial Inequity in Grant Funding from the U.S. National Institutes of Health. Before we discuss all of that, can you first just tell us a little bit about how science funding generally works? Yeah, so there are a diversity of scientific funding agencies in this country. One of the biggest is the National Institutes of Health, which is plural, 24 of which have what's called funding authority, which means they make research grants to support the research in places like UCSD, other universities and research institutes. These days in the biomedical sciences, it is almost inevitable that you have to run your program on grant funding found from outside of the university. And the process is, is that professors uh, write up proposals, they submit them for com- competition. A panel of experts then meet and sort of grade and rank those proposals that have come in. And then it goes, you know, these these rank scores are then used by the National Institutes of Health. They decide what to fund. Right now, we're running about something on the order of maybe 20% of grants that are submitted get funded. Now, it mostly goes in the order of uh, the peer review process. So if the peer review panels say this is the best proposal, it's generally going to get funded. If they say it's a terrible proposal, it's generally not going to get funded. In between, there's a vast gray area. Right. It's got this, this random subjective component to it that may not really have anything to do with your quote-unquote objective merits if there were any such thing as that. What are the current issues with this funding process? This paper that we wrote is more of an op-ed type of thing that looks right, right. at other papers that have been published by people from the National Institutes of Health. So the data that we're talking about come from studies conducted by the National Institutes of Health examining their own grant award process and focusing on the success rates based on who the principal investigator is. Now, the principal investigator is a role on an NIH grant 
this sort of means the main, the main ringleader. In 2011, the NIH performed a review of grant applications that were submitted for a particular period of time. And so this was 2000 to 2006. So they looked at the success rates or how many had been awarded versus how many had been submitted for PIs who were white and PIs who were black. And there was a huge disparity. The success rate for applications with African-American PIs was 17%. And for white PIs, it was 29%. And that was the big, that's the, the central uh, motivating finding that bleeds forward into modern day. As you can imagine, in 2011, when it came out, and they you know, said all the right things, the National Institutes of Health director, Francis Collins, who's the current director, was quoted in the, in the industry press saying, isn't this terrible? We got to do something about this. Just to kind of short circuit a little bit, we can jump forward to 2019. So this is in much more recent time when there was basically a replication study. And so they reported similar data. So they looked at, again, these workhorse grants. They looked at a sample now from uh, 2011 to 2015. So you can skip forward. And lo and behold, the success rates had fallen over this period of time for everybody. And the ratio yeah. <laughs> was exactly the same. So it was like absolutely nothing had changed in this central indicator. So applications from white PIs are 1.7 times more likely to be funded than those from African-American or black PIs. Yeah. And is there any commentary or explanation for why this is happening? So I want to emphasize this is a this is a very thorny problem. I think in my best estimation that this is one of those scenarios of a death of a thousand cuts. And so obviously we have a disparity like this, especially in the beginning. Uh, the implication is to point to one factor, one sinister thing that somehow explains and solves everything. And if we just identify what that is, we can we can fix it. Is it you know some sort of overt mustachio twirling? clanhood wearing bias to the point of grant review? Heck no. But, you know, uh, you know, and, and all of our understanding on this has evolved over time, right? So I think we're, we're appreciating now in 2021, the way that systemic biases work, the way that implicit biases work, and the way that, again, it's sort of this death of a thousand cuts thing where many, many factors can add up to the whole. Now, researchers have tried to tease apart these results and see if there are any other factors that could be contributing to these disparities. For example, could this difference be explained by the rank of the universities the investigators work at or how popular their research topic is? Some of these factors turned out not to be significant contributors to the disparity at all. Other factors were more relevant, but at best they were able to explain 20% of the disparity. Not 20% of the funding rate, but 20% of the difference in success between the African-American and white PI applications. So there have been attempts to explain this further and to identify which individual factors make the deepest cuts. But ultimately, it's clear that these disparities are the result of a complex combination of many factors. But it, it's, valuable to, it's valuable to do these things, right? So it's valuable to get into this because we can always do better. What do you want to see change? So what should NIH do differently? What should scientists do differently? I think NIH has an obligation to take this head on. I like to describe 
what I see is a parallel situation. So since forever, the NIH has bemoaned the fact that relatively new investigators, people early in their careers, or people who have no prior grant award experience from the NIH, their proposals suffer and they do not score very well and they have a very difficult time getting funded. And they have tried various uh, strategies over the years to try to um, fix this problem, including sort of set aside fundings and special you know, grant mechanisms just for new untried professors. They came up with this thing called the early stage investigator designation. Which they basically said, if you're less than 10 years out from the award of your doctorate, your PhD, or your MD, you are going to get a special help. You are going to basically get extra consideration at a lower score for your application than we're given to people who had experience. So basically there was this, as I describe it, a heavy-handed, top-down, quota-based affirmative action put in place for untried new scientists. It goes on to this day. It's been going on for at least 15, 18 years. And so in 2011, one possible solution was just to fund more grants. And that was basically what they were doing for these early stage investigators. They were saying, no, 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 it's more important to us that we keep funding new people or else we're going to end up with this graying research force uh, and never have any new blood. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a situation like this where they could decide which grants to fund out of the quote unquote strict order of review if they wanted to. They have chosen not to do that. Now, I'm here to tell you, we know why they won't do it. Mm-hmm. And it's because despite the fact that I use these terms you know, judiciously, despite the fact that it is top-down, heavy-handed, quota-based affirmative action to fund these grants with young investigators to the helm. Even a sniff of such a thing based on African-American PIs, despite this disparity, draws political fire. And the NIH is a taxpayer-funded, congressionally appropriated, institution of our government. And they are, or have been, I would say, reluctant to explain to potential opposition in Congress why it is that this is a situation that should not stand and why it should be viewed as a uh, preference system for white PIs that exists that needs to be remediated as opposed to defining this as we often do as being, well, this is some kind of special help for black PIs. Now, one of the one of the lights, one of the sort of potential bright lights at the end of the tunnel, actually came out of this this recent paper, this um, this hot paper from 2019, which is that one of the things it focused on was, and it sort of opens up another can of worms, but it focused on the topics in which um, proposals tend to cluster, and that's where they saw some disparities, which is that you know there were some topics and some areas of research that were pretty much more favored by, again, the relatively few African-American PIs who are in the system, uh, and some topics and clusters and ideas and areas where there are relatively few. And it turned out that those areas that were of substantial interest to a large percentage of African-American PIs were the ones that were most poorly funded. The point being is that this is one possible partial actionable solution that all of a sudden we're talking about not just the fate of of individual principal investigators and how they might succeed or not in the system, 
When we're talking about systemic biases in our national approach to what kinds of health concerns, again, it's the National Institutes of Health, which, a, which has got a mission that is in large part dedicated to improving the health of the nation. Then all of a sudden you've got a disparity in where taxpayer funded uh, studies are being devoted to what topics they're being devoted of interest to different taxpayer communities. And you know, people of color are taxpaying individuals. And if they're not having their health concerns addressed, we've got a larger issue than just the fate of individual you know, professors and principal investigator researchers out there. Would it be a possible solution to say these research categories that Black PIs are frequently applying for funding in, could we just place a higher priority on those research categories? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so for example, within the National Institutes of Health, you have institutes that have what you think of as a primary uh, disease focus. So there's the National Cancer Institute, obviously focused on cancer. There's the National Institute on Drug Abuse. There's the National Institute uh, for Mental Health. And so there's these topic domains. There's also a um, National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities. Now, it's great that that was founded to address some of these gaps and missing things. But basically, they are potentially funding grants that happen to be on a health disparity or, or a minority population but they probably have something to do with these other broader parent institutions. They probably focus on cancer or drug abuse or mental health or neurological disease and stroke. Right. And so I should say that the NIMHD, the, uh, this, this institute that's supposed to focus on minority health and health disparities has a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the budget. Mm-hmm. It's I think about 2% of the overall NIH budget. And so then we get into the question of, well, if there's, if there's a proposal that comes in that happens to focus on health disparities in, in, I don't know, um, you know, obstetric outcomes or something. Um, why is it being funneled off into this tiny funded yeah. <laughs> institute for funding instead of in a more sort of topic domain focused institute that has to presumably a larger share of the, the overall budget? And so these are these are shifts in emphasis that could also be easily accomplished within the the purview of each of these sort of topic domain institutes of health. Definitely. I mean, it seems so clear that while establishing that institute maybe a step in the right direction to addressing some of these disparities. In the end, Black health is not a separate category of health. It's health. And why should the health of different quote-unquote minority groups be separated into its own institute? Why is it not fully integrated into the approaches of all these other institutes? So you've actually touched on another potential structural solution. So what you just said applies in spades to the fate of women in science and in healthcare. But the NIH took some pretty radical steps about uh, five, six years ago to require uh, a greater deal of focus on sex differences. We call it sex difference. Sex, um, sex is a biological variable is the, uh, is the phrase that's, uh, that's sort of in vogue. And so a lot of this has been focused specifically at, at non-human research. So preclinical research, working in animal models, even working in cell models. And you know, my domain, which is typically animal research, um, to say, no, it's not okay to just do everything in male animals anymore. You have to sort of address your main outcomes in both male and female animals to a much greater degree than has ever been. And so this has actually upheaved the process of NIH grant review to include a greater percentage of uh, focus on potential sex differences, even if there are none that come out. And so this is another area where you could look to this solution that's been put in place and you could say, well, 
perhaps we should require every proposal to at least address health disparities. Now, that doesn't mean that you know you're necessarily going to. Obviously, you do not have you're not modeling uh, <laughs> human, uh, ethnic, and racial populations in rats. But you can, in some cases, depending on if you have an identified genetic difference. But more importantly, you should at least have investigators make some statement. Right. How they are addressing this, how they're considering whether differences exist or not in their topic of study, and therefore whether it's important to pay attention to or not. Yeah, I can attest to that, you know, in my own personal experiences with grant writing. Yeah, it's not necessarily that not every research project is going to be able to accurately comment on sex differences. But you have that step in the grant process where you have to at least face that concept and go, is there something I can do here? Is there another analysis? How can I add to this information with my study in some way? And so it feels completely plausible to say, let me just take that step to assess, can my study do anything to consider health disparities? And in many cases, that the answer might be yes, and we're skipping that step altogether. Right. I should point out that this is not, again, this is not the only solution, right? This is not yeah. the only problem. There are still plenty of African-American PIs who work on things that don't have anything to do with health disparities, don't have anything to do with minority health concerns. Mm -hmm. And they are also uh, having a, a funding disparity against them. So it's yeah. not just, um, you know, so, so again, going back to that, uh, you would rank, uh, applications by, by topics and then kind of rank them by how these topics fare. Those African-American PIs and those most favored, most fundable, uh, topic clusters are also suffering a huge disparity. So it's, it's across the board of topics. It's, it's still present. Now the process of NIH award is this, in what I call an inherently conservative process because those people who get called to serve on review panels are those people who have already been successful in, in acquiring one of these major grants themselves. And so this means that the population who are reviewing them tends to have been selected for uh, certain characteristics and approaches by the system. They have certainly been beaten into the mold by the system. And they tend to be people who have this um, similarity with the people who have come before and decided on their grants. Right. And so there's this kind of you know cycle of continued appreciation for the status quo because the people who are reviewing the grants, regardless of their skin tone, are people who have a tendency to have been trained in the laboratories that do things that are already very successful. And so their interests lie in those areas mm -hmm. and they tend to do better and their connections are better and their ability to, you know, propose things that are quote unquote fundable right now are improved. And this is really super subtle. Yeah. So you end up with this system where in order to break it, you've got to figure out some way to have New blood, basically. You've got to have some way to have those people who are not. So this is a, you know, this is one of the specific proposals that we make. This is one fix that could happen, is to break this obligation for reviewers to have already been successful in the system. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest that, you know, what we really should be doing is we should be pulling from, you know, basically the population that is that is um, applying for grants, successful or not. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. I mean, basically creating a more unbiased jury. And I can see, you know, right away I hear like a standard faculty's 
uh, argument and against it because you want to believe that the system is working based on merit and you want to believe that those that are successful are successful because they are actually the best scientists and those are actually the most important things to study. So there is that initial response of being like, well, you can't just get any scientists. You need to get the best ones, the smartest ones. But, you know, we obviously know, as you're pointing out, there's a lot of reasons that success occurs in science. And yeah, adding this, yeah, randomization yeah, is not the right word, but breathing fresh air, new ideas into the pool is important. Yeah, let me give you a specific example, which is that, you know, one of the ways in which we try to make evaluation of our peers, of scientific, of, of scientists, of, of professors, somewhat objective, it has to do with how many people are citing their papers. The number of people that have written another paper that have then cited that paper is taken as saying, well, your work is very influential on other scientists, and therefore it must be good, must be the best. And these are the kind of things that actually went into some of these earlier analyses from the NIH on grant successes to try to say, well, sure, this particular population of people doesn't uh, have as, as good a success rate in their grant applications, but that's because nobody cites their papers, right? So they're not as good as scientists. That was what something boiled down to. Mm-hmm. Um, suffice it to say, this focus on, say, citations of papers is a good thing to think about. So just think about it. If you have, you know, citations come from vibrant, well-funded, vigorous subfields that focus on a given topic, Let's go back to what I just said, because it's a simple example of, you know, the difference between somebody who works on oxycodone and somebody that works on, say, fentanyl. And if there are a tremendous large number of labs who are working on, you know, topics related to oxycodone, they're going to have a tendency to cite other papers on oxycodone. And they're, you know, I mean, it's a little bit of a bad example, but they tend not just, you know, focus on, on citing papers on fentanyl. And suppose there's this sort of one, you know, lone figure out there saying, oh, we got to do research on fentanyl in this given subfield, and they're publishing as best they can, and nobody's citing them. Is that because they stink? Or is that because they don't have a lot of peers are working the exact same topics? But it comes back to funding. It comes back to the number of people who are funded to do research on that topic. And so, you know, that's, that's this inherent circularity issue here. Mm-hmm. That when we start looking at, you know, a quote unquote objective measures of scientific quality, it's bound up in the funding. And if a whole bunch of different people that had interests that lay in other things, like, for example, uh, health disparities, if they if there were tons and tons of people funded that focus on health disparities, you would have a tremendously different perception of what the quote unquote objective merits of bigger and citation and fancy journal articles were because those would be the people who had the largest subfields, the most vigorous subfields, pumping out citations year after year after year. I just want to plug at the Black and Neuro Week 2021, there was an event, um, Dr. Damian Fair uh, did a journal club on a preprint of a paper called Racial and Ethnic Imbalance in Neuroscience Reference Lists and Intersections with Gender. And it, you know, there's research going into exactly what you're talking about, these racial, ethnic, gender disparities in citations. And yeah, it's it's just another one of these, these cuts, um, like you're saying. So I can really appreciate while parts of the conversation and the dissection of this can feel circular, it's because the issue is circular and it's important to, at any part of the circle we can, <laughs> look for ways to address these issues.
So do you have any advice to faculty members, junior faculty members, or scientists of color in terms of what we can all do to address this issue? I guess my most fundamental my most fundamental communication to young scientists is that you need to be focused on the business of being a scientist. And these are aspects that we've been talking about today. This is basically the business of being a scientist. And so I think one of the fundamental things I would say to younger scientists, particularly scientists of color, is to get them to be real about the about the uh, about the way this career goes, and about the odds that that face them. While at the same time working on the uh, prescriptive side and saying, no, 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 this is the way we want it to be, and demanding the NIH do things uh, to change the way they're they're operating, and to demand that say our senior faculty uh, evaluate career progression with the knowledge of this millstone, basically that's around the neck of um, statistically speaking are, you know, professors of color. Mm-hmm. You know, there's sort of a truism in, in uh, communities of color that, that, well, you understand, you just have to work harder. You have to work twice as hard to be considered half as good. You know, all these little sort of aphorisms. And women express these as well. With the NIH system, it's good to get a firm grasp on just exactly what that means. It was hard enough as a young person trying to get started in this business that I thought that it was useful to to learn a lot more about how NIH actually operates. So, yeah, I mean, I would prefer not to have to spend my time demanding the NIH to stop discriminating against Black PIs. I would. But that's not reality. Uh, You take reality as it comes at you, and you try to stick, you know, do your one little part to, to, to help things. Uh, I do have one closing point, which is that, you know, it's important to recognize that the funding of the National Institutes of Health and the research on biomedical sciences is one of the greatest things we do as a country. You know, we're generating knowledge, which eventually is free to the entire world. And so this kind of behavior of our country funded by the taxpayers is really a, it's a phenomenal contribution to humanity. So this is another reason why this distresses me so much is that I think this is one of the greatest things we do, and I think we could be doing a better job of it. Thanks again to Dr. Michael Taff for joining us on this episode of N Equals One. You can find all our other N Equals One episodes at health.ucsd.edu slash podcast, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us.